to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Seimin An, who is the managing partner of Rakuten Ventures. Rakuten is often referred to as the Amazon of Japan. It's the largest uh, e-commerce and internet company based in Tokyo. Seimin used to work at Google beforehand and now serves as the managing partner and head there. He goes pretty deep into how he looks at investments as a VC and offers some pretty sound advice to young founders who are looking for funding. Let's get on to the show. How you doing, my man? Uh, welcome to the J. Kim Show. Uh, it's very, very good to be here. I am fine. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, it's coming up to the end of the year, and you know we're we're uh, we're really excited to have you on. Uh, you know, I had the good pleasure of hosting a startup grind event with you uh, not too long ago, and uh, the crowd really, really enjoyed uh, what you had to say. So I was like, hey, I got to get this guy on my podcast. <laughs> so thank you for agreeing to come up, come on the show. No worries. I think it was one of the best uh, interviews that I really had. I mean, for me, I, I, I like the content so much that when people ask me what venture capital is, what I think of venture capital is, I definitely just send them that link. And it's a really good 40-minute kind of rundown of how I thought about investments and the overall landscape. So, you know, I, I thank you for, uh, you know, being such a good host. Oh, no worries. And so we're going to share the spread the wealth of knowledge here today uh, as much as we can on the show. So uh, why don't for the audience tuning in, you give a little bit of uh, introduction of who you are and uh, what you do for a living. Sure. Uh, my name is Seiman On, um, and I run a venture capital uh, arm of a e-commerce conglomerate called Rakuten in Japan. Um, well, not e-commerce conglomerate. We we do a lot more. We do have a giant fintech sector. We also have a travel vertical. Uh, but for me specifically, I run the corporate venture capital arm of that company. Uh, we started out about four and a half years ago, now rounding five, to understand how to do investments in a synergistic way in Southeast Asia. And then we realized that if we could actually build this out into a full-out business, there could be a way for us to be not only disruptive, but add a uh, very nice economic value to the businesses that we are running in tandem by being a pure financial vehicle. And, uh, you know, it's it's now 2018 running into, and I'm happy to say that uh, we have some amazing companies that we hope will do very well in the coming future. Great introduction. So uh, let's take a little bit of a step back. How did you come up? You know, where did you, go, you know, how did you, what did you study in school? How did you become an investor to begin with? I know that you had a, a background in tech. We always sort of a tech interested uh, type of guy or did you kind of stumble upon it uh, by, uh, by by chance? Sure. I mean, um, for me, uh, if I were to start at, uh, at, at college, I actually wanted to become a journalist. So I had actually majored in broadcasting and journalism in a Korean university called Seogang University. Um, and, uh, you know, the more and more I did this, I also wanted to learn about business. So naturally, I double majored. And, you know, as my time progressed in college, I started to wonder about 
what business was, why business was, uh, much more uh, philosophically than people would like. Uh, I wasn't watching the my, my books or I wasn't looking at spreadsheets. I was looking at why would a company do A, B, C, D? Why would a company do X, Y, Z? And as I kind of entered the workforce, I ended up working at two to three startups in Korea and moved on to Hyundai Card, which is the Hyundai credit card company. Um, and then after about a year of that, I ended up moving to Google. Um, and I did about five good years at Google, uh, you know, covering uh, things related to hardcore telesales, to looking at publisher relationships, later moving on to business development, and then looking a little bit more at how you would do corporate development for Southeast Asia and looking at uh, things related to actually investments. Um, and that kind of daisy changed into a opportunity uh, for Rakuten Group. They were looking for, again, as mentioned before, a way to do investments in Southeast Asia. Um, and really, it was Sam's your uncle. It was good timing. And for me, my biggest opportunity cost was, was that, you know, if, I, if, this isn't, if, if this didn't work out, I probably moved that back to Google and kept on doing what I loved. Right. And so before Rakuten, were you, sorry, Rakuten right now, you're based in, in Japan or in Korea? That's a really good question. Um, I'm based actually in Singapore. Uh, Rakuten Ventures, right. home, yeah, yeah. Rakuten's home office is based in Singapore. Um, we our headquarters is Singapore, and we actually have a satellite office in our HQ, um, and we have two employees working out of there. Right, got it. Okay, so for the audience listening in that's not familiar with Rakuten, as uh, Simon said, uh, explained earlier, they are large. Uh, you know, uh, a Japanese electronics com- e-commerce. Uh, internet slash internet company, also known as the Amazon of Japan. Uh, And of course, you know, they have a a huge sort of corporate war chest behind them. So uh, maybe you could explain a little bit how uh, Rakuten Ventures is broken, is sort of um, organized underneath, uh, I guess, the the umbrella of, uh, is it Rakuten Capital that is above you? Yep, yep. So that's a really good uh, kind of segue. So so in terms of when I first started out, we ha- we didn't have Rockwood and Capital, but as our company matured and got more comfortable with the act of investment, uh, we formed an umbrella corporation on top of what I'm working uh, and, and running, which is Rockwood and Ventures. So on top of Rockwood and Ventures, there's something called Rockwood and Capital. And there is about three pillars of investment departments. One is Rockwood and Ventures, which I'm running. There's a fintech fund, which there's a guy called Oscar running. And there's a e fund, which is run in tandem, which does synergistic investments for e-commerce themed startups in Japan. So these are kind of the three large pillars of investment departments that exist inside Rakuten. And for me specifically, I've run, I run a true blue financially driven investment vehicle. Mm, interesting. And you mentioned that when you had joined, you were basically joining uh, the, the mandate was basically to expand into Southeast Asia, as in they weren't interested at all within Japan itself. They were interested in spreading out to, to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. That's that's also a really good segue. And that, you know, when we were looking at Southeast Asia, at least Rakuten Group, they saw a lot of opportunity, not only in Singapore. Singapore was more of a staging ground for what they wanted to do in places like Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Uh, but in, in parallel to that, they also wanted to do, if we were to actually inject strategic liquidity into specific companies or specific kind of uh, entities, would this enable us to do business 4 to 5% better? 
better, 10% better. And that was kind of the genesis of how, you know, the Rakuten Strategic Investment Group came to be, which I took over. For me, the reason why I tried to turn the key and, you know, in terms of kind of calibrate the company to a different direction is, was that we started to do one or two investments in as the Rakuten Ventures, um, but still looking at more synergistic and strategic needs. But it turned out that we could add so much more value for the group if you were to look at this at a much more transparent perspective of we simply want to invest in this company because in the mid to long term, we believe that it'll do well and doing well will also add financial value for the company. And we started to slowly increase kind of the geographic scope of the investments until, uh, you know, people were uncomfortable. The good thing is that people never got uncomfortable because, um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because in the end, um, I made sure that if this was a mistake to be made, it would be made by the single crazy Korean person running a Japanese venture (laughs) venture capital company in Singapore. So I have to ask you, man. uh, So again, you know, I mean, obviously you had a background from from Google and and Hyundai Card and and a few of the other places, but how in the world did you land this job? uh, As you just said, a single Korean guy basically running the venture arm of one of the largest corporate, uh, you know, funds uh, from Japan. Uh, for me, I, I, I kind of mentioned this early on before, but I have a insanely low perception of what opportunity cost is. So I, going in, I really, <laughs> I really didn't understand what the costs were or the or what the risks, risk, risk, uh, you know, appetite was here, uh, but. I also have to give credit, full credit to Rakuten Group and also Mikitani-san because it's kind—it's the kind of a group where if you can step up and in many ways, the moniker Sink or Swim is very succinct with hiring top talent in, in Rakuten and that if you can perform, we will give you as much mm. girth and birth as you want as long as you bring in the promised KPIs, OKRs, or overall performance that you want, uh, that, that you know the group expects of you. So in that perspective... Um, those two get kind of ran in parallel, analog- uh, analogous to each other very, very well. And it's just been five years after that. That's pretty cool. Um, so obviously, you are doing quite a good job there because they've, uh, you know, uh, progressively given you uh, uh, pretty much the keys to the car, the kingdom, if you will. Um, why don't you, uh, let's let's get into some of the uh, investing side now, um, because I'm sure a lot of our audience wants to hear what is what, if give us a little bit of a background on how you look at investments. What is the methodology that you have uh, concocted when you look at companies to invest in? Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's always a mixed bag when I actually look at this. And definitely, you know, starting in 2013 and now, how I look at investments have changed so much. And when I back, look back at some of the investments that I made, they were thankfully the right investments, but they were done with so, so much blindness. It makes me actually nervous just to look at old investments. So, so that <laughs> I, I, I hope that people listening to this podcast understand that, you know, I never really started out with a full deck. But what I came to realize is, is that we simply want to invest in businesses that make sense to us. And what does making sense mean to rock with venture? It really means that does this, does this business have some sort of asymmetrical informational advantage, some sort of 
sourcing advantage. Where is the actual relationship arbitrage coming from? So, you know, I kind of made this uh, comment when we were doing startup grind, but in, in that perspective, I was saying, look, if you were a person that was trying to build a, the next Trojan, uh, Trojan condom in Malaysia, and it happens to be that your father is also one of the biggest exporters of latex, it made sense that this person would try to build that kind of business inside Malaysia. If you were trying to look right. at how to build a, the next generation of artificial intelligence or computer vision, what was so important and a lot of people actually missed out on was the creation of the right kind of business model and the right kind of cost of goods sold mixed. A lot of people don't understand that a lot of the AI companies coming out right now are, will have and consistently have a hard time making bank just because all of their engineering force, no matter how, how qual high quality, is too expensive to actually develop a profitable model out of. So a lot of these things in relation to how can you actually make sense of business and how does that make sense of the investors uh, amalgamated into our investment thesis and looking at how does it scale meaningfully. And when I say scale, scale meaningfully, and, and one investor might say that scaling meaningfully is getting to $100 million revenue run rate. And for me, I would say that you know if I had the choice, I would rather scale to $50 million, make sure you are able to manifest profitability and work from plan C. So these things definitely were a little bit different in terms of how I looked at venture capital compared to other shops. Right, right. That's interesting. Uh, any sort of... Uh I mean, it, it sounds like you, you've, it sounds like you pretty much had free reign, but I, I'm curious as to is, was there, or have you since implemented any sort of, uh, you know, metrics or guidelines when you, when you look at companies, sectors, um, you know, exposure in, in different areas, uh, ticket size, this sort of thing, like, like what, what, what is your formulation now? Sure. Um, just to look at you know what we normally do historically, we do investments anywhere between a million to about ten million U.S. dollars, and we do this, and we don't actually put a lot of you know emphasis on nomenclature. Like, oh, we only do early stage investments. Oh, we only do kind of growth stage investments. Mm. We don't put a lot of uh, actual kind of uh, emphasis on that because a lot of times. By different verticals, the liquidity needs are so different. So if you're trying to build out an advertising uh, technology stack that is very, very next generation SSP ad server, you would need anywhere between you know eight to fourteen million dollars to actually scale that to a point where you can sell that to the next Snapchat or the next uh, you know uh, Facebook to to actually buy it as a SaaS product. But mm -hmm. at the same time, if you were just trying to build the next OfferUp, which is a very popular C two C platform in the US, then it would cost you as little as one to two million dollars just to build out a working feasible platform that people get get on and to sell their used items. So in that perspective, we just have a simple range of about a one to ten million dollars that we would invest in. And looking at more about kind of what sectors we focus on, we have naturally gravitated, at least for now, towards very strong technical banded companies. So things related to artificial intelligence, advertising technology, uh, you know, data transferal formats and whatnot. We're starting to look at how do you actually do uh, kind of uh, like wireless transfers of data and information a lot more cheaply. So, for example, you know, can we actually utilize some of the technology coming out uh, coming out of Starry, which is a a uh, short wave kind of the 
the 5G replacement platform um, that uh, one of the founders in the U.S. are building out. Is there a way to replicate that in different parts of the the world and actually implement that in, in the right way? So for I, I guess the shortest answer is, is that for us, our biggest strength is that we are always open and opportunistic to specific behaviors and specific movements in the market. And to that, you know, I'm even starting to look at biotech companies. Um, there's such a cool company out in the U.S. in Boston called Vaxis. And what they do is they actually utilize a silk protein so that when you actually inject that into vaccines, the vaccines become much more resistant to temperature change and also inertial damage so that you don't need to actually have cold chain and don't need to worry about cold chain breakages. So it really goes and kind of overlaps and reaches far from gamut to gamut. As far as uh, stage, of, are you stage agnostic or you tend to, uh, to veer towards sort of the earlier uh, rounds like series A and above? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we're looking at like one to 10 million US dollars, uh, we would be considered more of an early stage investor. Um, and right. we utilize uh, the rest of the money that we have as dry powder to make sure that our existing investments are doing well. Um, and, you know, one mm. thing that we want to make sure we do in Rockwood Adventure is, along with all the other stuff that I talked about, I really want to focus on not keeping too many portfolio companies in the stable. Like, in my mind, I do not want to invest at one time and have in the stable more than 17 companies. I just want to make sure that we have a really good uh, kind of stable portfolio and the dry powder is left for those 17 country uh, companies to grow and become more meaningful. Right. Interesting. So at, at this point, uh, you know, you've made a handful of investments, I'm sure, and you're constantly evaluating from uh, internally from above. Uh, what are there certain growth metrics or, or uh, targets that you have to hit? I mean, is there, are there plans to have, uh, you know, launch further funds uh, if, if this one does well, uh, this sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, if you're looking at what our growth metrics are, what do we view as good good performance? Like, how does HQ actually ascribe a score to us and whatnot? Um, you know, ideally, we want to look at, you know, we, we do have internal metrics in terms of what kind of IRRs we want to hit and what kind of whack we should be hitting above. But outside of that, we just want to make sure that in our mind and with the founder, we have an agreed upon metric that we say that this metrics are these metrics are important. And as long as we hit them, um, we are doing a good job and then we can continue to actually build out a relationship. So and going kind of dovetailing that into your question about what do we want to do? Um, definitely, we want to actually develop really, really great exits and at the same time develop uh, you know, different uh, financial levers to be able to play more meaningfully in, in, in the markets. And what when we say that, you know, in, in the future, in my mind, I don't even uh, kind of only, uh, you know, look at the private sector markets. I want to actually understand how can our liquidity also affect the, uh, the public sectors and whatnot? How does a financial vehicle and investment company actually become much more holistic within itself? And I think, you know, when you look at a $500 million venture capital fund, in my mind, I'm also thinking that, oh my goodness, you know, if you can actually build this out into maybe a half and half of private and public sector investment vehicles, this could be a lot more value driving. Right. 
Right. That makes sense. And then as far as uh, VC uh, and interacting with the, the founder, which you mentioned uh, briefly, what kind of a VC are you? Are, are you one that usually leads around? Uh, are you do demand a board seat? Uh, how proactive are you in steering the company and working closely with the founder, providing you know resources and this sort of thing for their success? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, for, for me, um, you know, historically, we have ended up leading a lot of the rounds that we've invested in, but it never has to be that way. Um, I mentioned this even before in, in, in our talk, but, you know, there are situations where uh, us leading is is less of a benefit if there is actually a stronger player on the ground that can be the lead and also help and give advice actively uh, in proximity to the founders. So we've had situations mm. where, you know, we, we, we had to make a choice where, of course, we love the company and we want to take the lead and more equity. But definitely, we, we, we said that we, we should let uh, the, the current kind of proximity-based leads take uh, the overall board seat and make sure that they can support the company the best they can. Um, you know, secondarily, you know, uh, we, we work with founders as much as the founders want to work with us. That's the best way that I can put it. And that some founders know exactly what they're doing and they really want uh, us to kind of step, take a step back and simply kind of give us give them advice when it's needed and for us you know we've always been happy about that but there's also some companies that actively want our participation because the way that we talk about you know their company is really really thought-provoking to them and in some many ways value added so it always runs a gamut but again it's really dealer's choice and the, we really follow, follow the founder's lead and making sure that I strongly believe that a founder performs well when he's the most comfortable with himself. And that's kind of my, no, my number one priority. Got it. <clears throat> well, that's, uh, that's, that's quite, quite insightful. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, and, and thanks for sort of uh, opening the kimono deep into sort of your process. Uh, I think a lot of listeners will, will find it fascinating. So let's uh, use that and segue now into, uh, into another question about, uh, I mean, th- this would be for founders uh, who are looking or who are in the, in the room they're waving uh, their their hand at you or doing their elevator pitch what sort of uh, advice do you have what 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 things do you look for uh you know quick any any quick uh, items that you look for any any red flags uh that you will <laughs> immediately eliminate uh, uh prospects uh from when a founder is trying to pitch uh, funding from your from your company. Sure, I mean the, the immediate red flag for me is when I look at a discouraged or very tired out founder. In that, you know, I can see that from our interactions, he's done this pitch so many times that it's motorized, and it's not about you know him being excited to meet me, but just try to get through and go through the motions. So one of the red flags is you know um, the person is is much more uh, kind of focused on completing the action rather than having an interaction with me. And in, inversely, one of the biggest uh, you know, important green flags, I would say, is that, oh my God, I love this company, is a company, number one, that with the, he's working on an industry that I'm interested in, but also he masters his whole industry. He knows exactly what's going on um, and he knows exactly what's going on in his company, 
But at the same time, he's able to break down all those complexities and really, really explain to me like I'm either a golden retriever or I'm a five-year-old, which is the best thing, <laughs> best feeling in life because it actually makes me feel smart for once when I'm dealing with people. Who, <laughs> yes, when, when when I'm dealing with people who actually you know kind of you know uh, manhandle GPUs and are trying to look at optimizing their TensorFlow uh, units. So definitely. You know, those four or five red flags and green flags are very, very important to be a person who exactly knows where he or she wants to go in an industry that I'm interested in and that I want to learn more about. But again, a very big red flag is when the person is simply trying to complete the action rather than trying to have a meaningful discussion with me, because I'm also there to learn something. You, one thing that mm. I want people to know if you're a founder who's trying to get funding is that investors, at least the meaningful ones that I understand and look up to, is trying to get something from you. They're also trying to learn something about the industry. And when you try to inter- when they try to interact with you, please you know, regard this as a two-way street. Right. Right. That's true because uh, sometimes funders uh, have portfolio companies that are doing the exact same thing as, as you are and uh, are just our mining data as well. Um, so speaking of which, what are the areas of growth, the opportunities, the, the you know, segments in the market that do interest you right now? Um, I mean, for me right now, the biggest area that I'm interested in is artificial intelligence, but more so in the region of how does you know a, a neural network unit actually live on IoT devices and edge devices without taking too much you know power with, with being actually efficient with output. There's a lot more discussion going on right now. Where yes, you know, uh, mobile processing units are becoming very, very powerful, but at the same time, we're still not there yet. Where where we can't, where we don't have to rely on centralized orchestration. So there's been a lot of talk going on uh, in among the investors and also the industry people, where you try to understand, hey, by 2030, most of the cars that we see on the highway will have supercomputers, right? You like people really don't understand this is that you're going to have at one point. Maybe 10, 15 years later, a highway full of cars that have processing units and uh, storage units that would normally be on supercomputers, right? Now, what happens Mm. when you get two to 300 cars running in one direction, uh, you know, and have basically an aggregate uh, aggregate computing power as a small server farm? Well, you're, you're able to actually make a lot of siloed individual cluster decisions that don't actually have to go back to the central server to, you know, ask for certain commands. And that's a really, mm-hmm. that's a really, really big thematic change because a lot of the computing themes that we see today are on the cloud. Cloud is centrally orchestrated, right? But now you're going to have enough computing power on the ground separately that'll make, that'll be able to make comparable decisions. So that's actually a very big theme that I'm looking at these days that'll be very, very important. If you dig a little bit deeper in terms of the microeconomics, you know, you can see a lot of the companies that were doing autonomous vehicle driving, um, that, that did a lot of the LiDAR-based technologies, you see that there's there's been a lot of acquisitions mm. and co- consolidation in the market. Now, what's going to be really interesting in the next one to two years 
is what happens to the guys who didn't get picked up? <laughs> like what happens to the guys <laughs> who are pitching like a hundred, $200 million valuations off of four PowerPoints right. and a couple of lines of code. And they weren't, they weren't the guys who were bought for a billion dollars. And now all the investors who backed those guys are looking for a great exit. And there's actually going to be definitely a large consolidative fold-in of these companies that are happening. And it happens in every cycle just because now, you know, private company liquidity becomes so much easier to come across once the, the risk profile goes down and opportunity costs go down. Um, so definitely those are going to be very interesting. Yep. A lot of a lot more stuff are, are going to come with biotech. You know, what happens with CRISPR, right? CRISPR is the gene editing technology uh, which allows you to actually develop a specific uh, a tool sets to actually uh, augment your genetic makeup. And now they're getting to a point where, number one, they can do it on uh, live animals without adverse health effects for the short term. But at the same time, these things yeah. are ready to go to test on humans human beings that is crazy like we are getting there we are getting to the future and it's all coming to a head we have ai we have genetic modifications augmentations and at the same time we're getting to a stage where the medical advancements are dramatically increasing you know human life even the people who, who live in the most developed uh, developing frontier markets are having much more uh, you know higher quality of life and dramatic lifespan than you know people ever did it 50 years ago so all of these things uh, you know really uh, kind of go uh, turn back to where how does science actually help right and you always looked at science helping out in terms of you know oh yeah, yeah we'll make people live longer uh, we'll make people much more healthier blah 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 but what happens when there's so many people that there's so much positive effect that there's so many people living and consuming so much more so there's a lot of these cyclical discussions that happen um, that will be really interesting topics to handle in the next maybe coming 10 to 20 years. Man, it's both exciting and frightening to me uh, as I sit here and listen to you say it. And I, I, I you know, we've, we've talked, everyone talks about singularity and this sort of thing. But then when you actually hear someone else saying it and, and the way you describe it, it's like, oh, gosh, you're right. What are we going to do? <laughs> We're doomed. And then. Yeah, and, and lest we forget blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, this thing is consuming more than 134 countries worth of energy, right? Individual. Oh, it's right. Insane. So, right, I mean, we even you know, briefly talked about this in that, you know, this thing is completely not what it was meant for, right? It's number one, completely centralized in China. Uh, number two, nobody's using it to buy anything. <laughs> number, three, exactly. number three, it is the most expensive currency to transact with. With, right so yeah. the, the the three monikers of what it was supposed to be no longer is relevant here right and we we there's there's so many weird stories around uh, 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 blockchain and uh, blockchain and bitcoin specifically that everyone actually forgets to to ask uh, and they just keep on looking at what are the short-term financial gains exactly that's really scary to me right now especially in all this hype it's like literally what you said no one no one even knows what the actual underlying business model if there is any of any of these icos are they're just literally 
betting that tomorrow it's going to be worth more than today. So they're jumping in. Oh, look, look, scary. Let me go Area 51 on you right now, right? All right, all right, let's do it. Okay, number one, what is Bitcoin solving? Can you tell me that? It's in theory, it was supposed to be a decentralized. Uh, no, no, no. What I'm saying is that it's 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 uh, it's 256, right? 256 encryption SHA. Sure. What is it solving right now? What what equation it is solving, right? And for 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 Bitcoin miners, then they would say, oh, same, and you don't get it this is just about you know trying to get the hash and zero right or something like that to 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 figure yeah. out the nonce so that once you figure out the nonce a bitcoin pops out right you know what that is you know what that looks like you know those uh, orangutans people experiment on where they press the right button and the celery pops out yeah. <laughs> that's that that's that, that. <laughs> that is basically that right you're a bitcoin monkey that's that's yeah. what it is right yep and think about this if it's if it's if if it's encrypted right then we should be able to actually break the encryption right but the thing is that salary is worth $16,000 a pop now <laughs> yeah i know i I, 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 yeah, that's a really nice piece of celery. <laughs> but why has nobody broken the encryption? Yeah, right. This is this this is supposedly generated from uh, what is it like 15 years ago? A PDF that a unknown Japanese person a white, made, right? A white paper. He might not a even be paper, Japanese. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so now you're telling me that something built 15 years ago as an encryption module is immune to five to seven generations of computational right. uh, cryptography solving technology, yeah. right? You, 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 is there no like, uh, like question marks that turn in people's heads, right? Is there no co- contradictions in life that we look at here, right? For me, as an investor, that's what really is weird to me, right? And as the, the, the core tenets of cryptocurrency Four tenths of Bitcoin is contradicted at every turn. Still, nobody asks the question, right? So that is something that really makes me un- like kind of look back and say, what is actually going on with this? Absolutely, I hundred percent agree with you. And as an investor myself, uh, you know, not not on the actual tech side, but just from a fundamental basis, knowing that it is literally backed by nothing. Uh, I it's just really difficult for me to uh, to see to justify the price action that we're seeing these days. Um, so thank you for for going a little bit deep there. I appreciate that. Um, last last couple of questions. I yeah, look. I mean, crypto is so funny these days. I literally cannot go anywhere without uh, having a conversation, and and unfortunately, ninety nine percent of them know hardly anything. Uh, unlike yourself, who actually knows uh, what you're talking about when it comes to crypto. Um, last couple of questions I want to ask for you. Simon, and thanks again for for your time. What is one well, either one one mistake that you've made as an invest as an investor that you could help uh, you know caution uh, any investors that are listening into, or maybe just one piece of advice for investors that are looking to maybe uh, dabble in early stage. Um, I mean, I I miss I make mistakes every day. Uh, <laughs> when I say that, I'm talking about you know 2020 hindsight is so very much more prevalent in venture capital to me. It, it's because that you sit on the board mm. and the decisions you make are so close the latency between the decisions and the effect are very so very low so in that perspective yeah. i think one of the mistakes that i consistently make and and no actually when i was just getting into kind of venture capital the one of the biggest mistakes that i made is i was afraid to speak up with other board members um, and that i assumed that the other board members knew better 
And when I look back at it, the actual board members didn't know better than me. And they were actually also looking for guidance. So the one of the biggest things that I understood is that when you have something to talk about, number one, it has to be really meaningful and it has to be really important to the founders, but you should never hold your tongue. That is something that I think I was a lot more shy to do, uh, but now I just make sure that I talk about that very often. And, you know, for me, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on is take the role of the board member for granted. Um, and I've seen board members take that role for granted and it disgusts me now. But now I have such so much more respect for what a board member should be. And I make sure that if I am one, I fight too to nail for everything that I could do for a founder and the company. And that's very, very important to me. And it's it, it kind of bores into the fundamentals of Rocket Adventure also. Right. Awesome. That's sage, sound advice. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that actually transcends to, to more than just being a board member, because uh, I think uh, a lot of people listening probably have never been a board member. But even, you know, just in life in general and in, in entrepreneurship and, in, in, you know, if you're an investor, this sort of thing, you know, a lot of times, uh, look, investors pride themselves on being the smartest person in the room, but you know, a lot of times they they just aren't. So uh, uh, there's a lot of smart people out there and it's always important to voice your own opinion. Um, so last question for you, Samin, uh, I'm, I'm sorry because uh, I, this might just unleash an onslaught of inbound requests. So you feel free to give a fake uh, contact point here, but you know, where can people find you, follow you, or connect with you if they want to learn a little bit more about Rakuten Ventures? Sure. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is at Samen4655. And a lot of people ask me questions and I try to answer those questions uh, as best as possible. Another good place to find me on to ask me questions is places like Quora. You know, I've been a long follower of Quora and I really like mm. interacting with the community and answering questions there. So definitely, if you have questions based on investments, if you have questions based on the industries that I'm investing in, I'd be happy to give my two cents. That's awesome, man. And thanks again. I, I apologize if you get inundated with pitch decks and this sort of thing. But no. Um, listen, listen. Uh, we really appreciate your your time, and thanks for uh, imparting your knowledge uh, to my audience. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're looking forward to to reading about you more in the uh, in, in news flow and and uh, in investments that you make, and uh, and wish you the best of luck, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. Take care, man. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. 
head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness. 